0: Good day, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Water Talk podcast hosted by the Moving Water Alliance. I'm Parth Gupta. I'm an environmentalist with The Planet Calls. Our guest today is Benoit Leroy. He's the CEO of the South African Water Chamber. Today, we'll be talking about water scarcity. How serious is it? Welcome to our show, Benoit. We're thrilled you could join us. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Thank you both and, and your listeners. Um, I'm really honoured to be part of your podcast and uh, yes, um, I've been in the water sector for four decades now. I'm one of the founding uh, partners of the South African Water Chamber, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit about uh, later. And um, I, our aim is to overcome the water scarcity issues uh, within uh, South Africa specifically and then into the subcontinent. And we're really an organization and association that represents the interest of the private water infrastructure supply chain uh, and collaborate heavily with government and have been um, quite key in in part of the policy development and uh, expediting um, various subsets uh, thereof. So we're in exciting times at the moment.
0: It really is, yes. Thank you so much for your introduction, Benoit. So in 2018, it was estimated that more than 2.1 billion people do not have access to clean drinking water. That's one in every four people on the planet. And the truth is that water scarcity is not something really far off. It's something that we're living with on a day-to-day basis. The pressing concern is actually how serious is it? Is it something that people just talk about for the media hype or to scare people? Or is it a reality? Is this something that people don't appreciate or realize today?
1: You, you know, I, I think it's not a binary um, answer. I think there's, it's two parts. There, there is an element of water scarcity, but to me, that's the the smaller element because there's there's plenty of water in the world. 70% of our surface area is covered with water mm-hmm. and uh, we need to shift up our, our paradigms. So the water might not be in the right places and it might not have the right amount of salt out of it, but uh, to to me, there's a lot of water and living in the fourth industrial revolution, we have all the technology to overcome this. Mm -hmm. I think the second part of of the um, issue we have is really that water is not a high enough priority within our governance systems. So, and what we're finding in South Africa that it's in actual fact, out of the 10 most important things, Three of them relate to water security in South Africa and upcoming local government elections. So I think society is starting to realize that it's not just energy and housing, it's water, because without water, there's, there's no dignity, there's no life, there's no economy. So I think it's a combination of both. And I think that um, we need to really understand the, the water cycle a lot better. And mm-hmm. I think that starts at an education level to, to, to a certain extent. And um, you know, areas that have very serious water scarcity, like in the Middle East, have in actual fact water security. So um, the technology is there. Um, so, but I think it, it, it's a very deep discussion. It's philosophical. But I think us as a society are the only ones who can help push to make it our top priority in the world because it relates to not only economic activity, but it relates to food security.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about the society, right? when we hear about water shortage statistics and these stories, right, we often imagine these you know, poor communities just not having water. The thing is, people in urban centers often take water for granted. We always expect that you know, when we turn the tap on, there will always be water flowing out. But the truth is that just isn't the case. As per UNICEF, in fact, um, half of the world's population uh, could be living in areas with water scarcity, in just about four or five years from now, that's 2025. So uh, could you share some stories here um, where you've seen such problems, even in the developed world, right? Something that shows us sort of the scale at which this problem is affecting us today.
1: Yes, I I think it's driven by uh, not overpopulation, but by urbanization. So it's a concentration of population in areas. And, um, you know, a thousand years ago, that used to be driven uh, by water. And trade was driven by water, and cities and towns were all um, around water, either on the coast or on a river. Where I live in in Gauteng, in the center of South Africa, is we have very little water. We import all of our water from different watersheds. And we've been doing this for over 100 years because of our gold mining. So we took water to us. And and so if you look at the situation in Cape Town, which is a mixture of first and, and third world, is they nearly ran out of water um, you know, a couple of years ago with the uh, so-called day zero, and we're going to be the first town of, of 4.1 or 2 million people that would run out of water. The, the reality is the population had grown, but water security was not viewed as a priority Within, uh, let's say, both governing parties. So, supplying housing was the big drive, and um, roads and um, shopping centers there's not very big industry, there's very, it, it, it's very tourism and, and food and beverage um, focused. Uh, but at the same time, Rome was also about to run out of water and the Italian population is not growing. So um, the other population issue, you know, to me, we mustn't overplay it too much. It's to do with urbanisation to a great extent, but also is to do with really tapping into, um, let's say, sustainable sources of, of water as opposed to relying on finite sources like groundwater which you also have in India where if you over abstract and doesn't replenish becomes a problem but if you look at California who's running out of water it's you know the the, they have had a drought like Cape Town had it it was drought induced but the reality was the fundamentals of the water supply is really based on surface water and with climate change our surface waters and our dams are far less efficient Um, they're evaporating much more much more the Mm -hmm. rain is not in the same catchment areas, what we're also finding is that the duration of rain, especially in the southern hemisphere, is it's it's, it's very heavy rains and for very short periods of time. So the Hmm. seasons have changed, intensities change. So we need to really look at how we harvest water and to me, if you look at the greater water cycle, the sea is the source of most of our water, apart from the polar caps. And desalination takes place naturally and um to me that is part of the solution where your base load should be from the sea and you top it up from your surface and groundwater resources and reusing water but you know we mustn't um think that we can reuse water over and over and over there are downstream uh, users in south africa be reusing water um for for over 100 years and agriculture mm-hmm. depends on the, on the downstream flows um, but we can also reduce our water footprint to an extent. But we'll talk about that a bit later. You know, we've got small water, and, and we're focusing on small water in the towns. Uh, the big water is, in actual fact, with seventy percent of our water is used, and that's in the food
0: supply chain. Hmm. Yeah. You know, talking about talking about California, I think you just mentioned right. Um, so while you know, I feel like the media probably doesn't give enough coverage to these issues, right? I was honestly surprised when I heard about examples of this scarcity sort of manifesting itself. Um, you know, just talking about the scenes such as the water rationing which happened in California. I mean, just to think uh, residents were ordered to cut their water use by 33%. And then, you know, they place restrictions on, on, on stuff like gardening water. Uh, but the thing is that a lot of the developed world, when someone uses more water than their allocated limit, they're fined um however what's your opinion right is a system which is based on fines for let's say going over the water limit really a deterrent uh, i mean people with money don't actually feel it i mean they have the money to bear the fines and so at the end of the day what we have is that the poor face the brunt of this water scarcity i mean i believe that if policing is being done for water use right it should be policing everybody equally so how do you police people not to use too much water?
1: You see, if if you look at what Rome did and what Cape Town did, is they imposed heavy fines. And um, that cut the two-thirds, up to two-thirds, on average in Cape Town, 50% decline, but up to two-thirds reduction in the water demand. And there's very little industry um, in the Cape Town metro, so to speak. In the four, 4 million, there's 1 million people who are classified as indigent to unab- un- unable to pay for water. They only use 45% of the water. Hmm. What happened is it collapsed the entire system when you um, reduced the water demand because now the upper middle class and the wealthy started reducing their water, um, not to the required levels, reducing it, and the cross subsidy couldn't be affected. The problem doesn't really lie in the cities. Seventy percent of our water in the world is used in agriculture, which is food production. So the embedded water in people is between four to six thousand liters a day in the food we eat. And that's what we need. For me, that's the bigger priority. So within the cities, we can control it to an extent. But the reality, the root cause is in actual fact in the food production. And I'm not saying we shouldn't eat certain foods and the likes. I'm a great believer in, in diversity. In, in diet and the likes, and um, and it's part of our cultures to, to a great extent. But also, there, there are ways of improving agriculture's uh, water footprint, and that you know just saving 10, 20 percent on agriculture is going to have a much bigger impact on uh, within you know within the towns. Having said that, in the towns, the biggest wasters of water are not the people; it's the government's distribution systems. And in South Africa, our leaks are 36%, 37% on average. And our non-revenue water, which accounts for some theft and for uh, some, let's say, billing issues, is 41%. So why put new water into a system where more than a third is actually leaking? And the global average is 25%. And um, in the developed world, it tends to be closer to 25%. In the developing world, closer to 45%. So, you know, it's, to me, it's really, it's government prioritizing, it's government putting incentives into agriculture because agricultural water is heavily subsidized in the first world and um, that doesn't drive efficiency. So that's where I think part of the focus has to be because uh, the cities, yes, they can reduce uh, their their leaks and the likes and they have to reduce it in Cape Town before the drought was at 14.8%. Um, leaks, which is very, very low. So it can be done, and it wasn't done to the detriment of anybody within, you know, within society. What Cape Town did do is shut off water. They put in, um, they called them um, weapons of massive destruction, and they put in these water meters that only gave you, I think, 150 liters a day, and they cut off. Um, Hmm. So, and they did that with the wealthy and the likes. So that did work. So it Hmm. didn't matter how much money you have. Uh, um, but also, what they did in Cape Town, they did—they've been doing this for nearly 20 years. That's why the the water leaks are low. They do what we call pressure demand management, and what that does is reduces the pressure with low demands, so the system leaks less. Because replacing the system in Cape Town, for example, is about five billion US dollars to replace the network. Um, the, you know, there's just not that money to do it. But what we have to do is accelerate the inf- the efficiency of the infrastructure um, maintenance. Uh, a lot quicker within the towns but agriculture is where the biggest hit is and if you have a look at our our biggest issues in California and if you look at the Indian subcontinent and you look at the southern parts of Europe is Mm. agriculture is is sucking the groundwater dry And, and that's really where a lot of the focus has to be so to me there's no reason why people who can't afford to pay for water should be affected at all they don't use a lot of water they don't waste water they're unable to do that so i think we can find a balance in the in, in their
0: approach i i see i see yeah and i think uh you have a really good point there. um in fact um you know we've sort of uh and i'm quite impressed at some of the steps you know which the which the government has been able to do and the good part is that it's actually backed up with a noticeable uh decrease in uh, let's say either the wasting percentage or the total water use so i think that uh, looks like hope is on the horizon there um but um you know just talking about um you know we've seen these initiatives done by governments right but um i also sort of want to focus on the private side of this things right uh things such as incentives on recycling water effluent treatment plants um what we've seen is that in most cases these solutions are a little too expensive for either individuals or corporations so what are some of the steps uh, which you feel that government around the world, right? Uh, and we've s- spoken about a lot of the uh, places where this problem is even more endemic. Uh, what are some of the incentives uh, government should, for instance, take, uh, you know, incentivize the public, incentivize these corporations and individuals um, to actually take up such projects which uh, which would save water rather than waste? it. Because right now it just seems like um, it's easy to waste water and so they do. So, so again, I'll go back to agriculture. That,
1: that, that is where our biggest issue lies. And if you look at what they're doing in the Middle East, in the MENA region, for example, um, there's very little wastage of water in agriculture. So it can be done, the technology's there, and it's not at a premium. And what we've found in, in Southern Africa is that the farming community are very early adopters of, of, of technology because um, it, it gives them resilience. I think industry uses about 10% of the water in the world. So industry and in in the EU, your effluent discharges are normally around 10% at 10 times uh, the the water purchase price. So most of the EU, especially the the wealthier nations, are Mm. reusing their water and they have sustainability reporting to the shareholders where water footprint um, is as important as carbon footprint. So I think from an industry perspective, um a, a lot is done that that can be done um mm-hmm. i think from a city perspective what we can do is improve and we see a big drive um, um outside of the eu we see a very big drive in indirect reuse in other words not for potable but mm-hmm. um for you reusing so at a utility scale because our systems in our cities are designed to um, uh, they have big centralized um, eff- effluent treatment plants to treat the sewage and and industrial waste, which is a small part of 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 it. It's ten percent of of it on average. Okay, it does vary in places. But to reuse that water. But the big issue is when you're reusing the water, you can reuse water. You know, we use potable water for a lot of industrial and commercial processes where we don't need um potable water, like for yeah. heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems the (HVACs). You can use um, treated sewage to do that but now we need a twin reticulation system and that's been tried in various parts of the world with limited success because there's quite a there's quite a cost in, in doubling up on your reticulation then we say well let's do it at a household level the reality is the average household in the world can't afford to do it and we've got to be very careful of health issues once mm-hmm. you start um, the reason why our towns are quite healthy and have grown since industrial revolution is that we take All of the contaminants that are waterborne and we flush them out of the cities so um, i'm a big proponent of um, utility scale reuse because what that does is it 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 really addresses the health issue and then we have scale and what happens is reuse that water but sustainably because the downstream users tend to be other cities and towns and also tend to be um, agriculture and definitely they are in, in south africa we have been reusing water potably from sewage in Southern Africa since 1966, and um, so we, we, you know, we we've overcome the yuck factor. Um, you know the old adage of toilet to tap. It's really ugly, but it, it, it's really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. But we've done that in South Africa because we've been, you know, water, let's say, water-wise for a very long time. And there's a whole stream of projects being developed as we speak now at utility scale to do that but it will not only be for potable, be for potable, commercial, agricultural, and uh, industrial use. Um, so for us, you know, the technology is there. It's not a matter of not having the technology. It's a matter of having a correct mass balance in each catchment area and in, and in the country. Uh, so, and is the EU is embracing this, but it has, it's very behind, for example, what South Africa is doing and what, let's say, California is looking at doing and what Singapore has been doing mainly on the back of a lot of South African technology. So the technology is there, it's a matter of society being more comfortable with reusing water and it's safe to do and in actual fact we can do it very economically.
0: I see, I see, I see. And uh, you know personally I feel like uh, just given uh, agriculture is such a sort of high water use uh, sector of the society right especially coming from the indian subcontinent i i definitely feel that easier access to the technology as you mentioned right it, it's definitely something which i've seen happening already here um so it you know again one of those positives uh, which seems to be coming out of the system yeah um but you know just shifting gears a bit um and i was just curious so uh, you know we've seen sort of the success of the carbon credit system and you've also mentioned how um, effluents are generally uh, 10 times the rate of, you know, uh, water for input, right? Um, do you think we need to expand these ideas I mean, to other parts across the world? They need to be, um, you know, sort of more well accepted into the society. And if yes, which ones do you think are running at the forefront right now? I, I have mixed feelings about the carbon credits. I, I don't think it's worked.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the intention is good because we, 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 we haven't addressed climate change. So, you know, carrying on with industry in let's say the industrial North and mm-hmm. offsetting it by buying credits in the less industrialized south, Southern hemisphere to me hasn't worked. So, you know, I don't know if that would work in water. What mm-hmm. I do know, there's, there's a large part of society that believes water is a human right. Now, if you look at the small water, that might be a human right, but 70% of the water is not a human right. Food is not a human right. Dignity is, but food is not a human right. We don't give free food to people in towns. We do give free water up to a certain level. So, you know, and the trading of water, and so if, you know, credits is a trading platform, the trading of water insinuates a privatization of water, Hmm. which is generally speaking, especially in the developing world, um, not on the table. And um, in South Africa, water was nationalized. And I do not see that changing very easily. Whereas if you look at Central Europe, water has never been nationalized and it's run at a decentralized local government level, but they've got plenty of water. So it's a lot easier to do. Nor- Northern Australia is trading in water. California started trading in water. I don't believe um, it necessarily has had the impact. It could have an impact in let's say the wealthier nations, but I'm not sure that a trading of of water with a credit system to drive efficiencies is going to be that easy to to implement. Um, but it's worth it's definitely worth exploring to see the lessons learned with carbon credits if you could maybe maybe have a platform that would uh, address our, our water scarcity.
0: Yeah. So thank you so much for your insight there. Um, in fact, uh, I think from from the above conversation, it's very safe to say that one thing we can take for granted is that we are running out of water and you know it's it's only going to get worse um which means we need to seriously think about solutions to tackle the problem and they need to be tangible steps right um and i definitely believe right as as i think you do too that there's much we can do without affecting our daily life significantly right ultimately uh the poor segment is just not the largest consumer we don't they don't end up wasting water. We're not the largest consumer. So, um, but in your professional view, right? Uh, just for our listeners, what is the biggest urban lifestyle activity right, which uh, you think wastes the most amount of water, and how do we curb it? So, so, I think that depends um, very much
1: on 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 the region. So, in South Africa we're accused of the middle class wasting a lot of water in our pools and in our our gardens mm-hmm. I think there's an element an element of truth in that where one can go to let's say more indigenous um gardens and cover the pools and and, and the like so I think you know one but you know the term the term wastage is we're accused in South Africa of wasting, we were using double the water the rest of the world i think that's nonsense because it's the cities in the distribution systems that are leaking Um, you know i think water is underpriced in general in cities so it gives less elasticity into um let's say doing appropriate as you know asset management but you know coastal cities that have decoupled themselves from rainfall and so, in other words, surface and groundwater, and on desalinating, on our desal- desalinating in the MENA region, cheaper than what surface water and groundwater costs. And these are the latest um, uh, numbers. So we're talking so it's cheaper than South Africa. So what we need to do is look at the supply side more than the demand side nice. in the cities, hmm. you know, and, and and decouple ourselves from, let's say the finite groundwater and surface water because seawater is infinitely renewable and it's part of the water cycle but the engineering has to be done correctly and where it's done correctly we see there's no environmental impact there's only enhancements um, and what we've seen in Australia for example is that with the coastal cities who are using more base load desalinated water is that the inland um, water catchment areas have re-established themselves, and that's attracting more tourism, more wildlife and tourism and the likes, but making more water available for, let's say, the, the wine production, so so the, the agriculture. So, you know, I, I, I think the biggest waste of water, well, the fact is it's government, it's the water distribution system, so that, that must be sorted out. And really, you know, we need to stop bashing the middle class who sustains um, everybody else. Um, so if you want to have a pool, cover it, so a beer, you have a garden, the likes, and charge appropriately, so that 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 water can be paid for, and the and the provisions can be made for asset management in the long term, and that the indigents can also be uh, cross-subsidised. Okay, oh, yeah. so you know, but in a healthy economy, everybody can pay for water, and, and and yeah, let's just make sure that you know in our society, people to be quite blunt are not, the middle class are not worried about the water footprint. And, and that to me is an education thing. So it's going to take a generation, mm. maybe more. And I think we can do a lot um, through podcasts like these and through the media, but also through the education system. And I'm talking primary level, that we need to be wa- aware of our water footprints because it is an issue. We're all aware of of energy because that gives us bandwidth to be on the internet. You know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's true that's true uh, in fact i think ultimately i think it all comes down to uh as you said right public awareness right if people are more aware we'll be more conscious of our water use and also we'll be able to you know make our governments accountable right to stop being the biggest wasters of water um and i and i definitely sort of echo your sentiments there you know one of the other sort of um big things is uh and we've talked about it a lot here at the planet calls is is about fast fashion right um which is uh definitely one of the up and coming culprits um in fact it's very hard to believe that one cotton t-shirt utilizes 650 gallons of water to make but you know as as you said right it's it's not even about how much water it utilized but over and above that Enormous water use. There's also rampant illegal dumping, and uh, all of these dyes, right? They ultimately find their way without being treated into the rivers and oceans. This is classic case of uh, not even not just using a lot of water, but end up ending up polluting it um, with the effluents even more. Um, have you seen these problems uh, come up, and uh, and how do we combat such industrial pollution?
1: So fast food and fast fashion, I agree with you, are definitely um, some of our uh, not aspiring habits. um, But it's really driven by a very extractive, um, let's say instant gratification society. And the more evolved society becomes, the more it relies on fast food and fast fashion. So, yeah, look, luckily, I think when it comes to fruit production, there's a lot of developments taking place that will um, address a lot of that. You know, the story of cotton for me is is, is quite interesting because hemp uses a fraction of what cotton does, and hemp got really sidelined by the big chemical industry in the northern hemisphere, starting in North America. Because, and they, they they use the marijuana, um, but, but hemp, generally speaking, doesn't have marijuana. It's one particular strain that does. Um, and it was to to for, for the rayon production and the visco. So for the, let's say, the synthetic production, um, uh, hemp was really sidelined. But hemp, until the Industrial Revolution, was the fabric of choice, not just for clothing, but also for uh, tenting, uh, for um, sales on ships, for trade and the likes so we need to look at alternatives there to an extent but if you look at textile is and in india you're using a more more co2 dyeing which is a dry dyeing process so you capture co2 from heavy industry and what you do is you use that in dyeing so there is no effluent the um central europe developed this technology just about a decade ago and the biggest early adopter was india And they're saying the overall cost is in actual fact cheaper. So if we start using more hemp instead of cotton, and then if we start using, you know, if you can't get out of fast fashion, we start using non-wetting dyeing processes like CO2. Mm -hmm. um, There's a switching cost obviously. What happens is we're able to actually counter these things so we can carry on having our instant gratification lifestyle if you want. You know, so I think there are solutions, there are root causes um, and solutions, and I think government's role, yeah, is in actual fact to tax. Um, but the problem is when you when government taxes, does that money go stay? Does it get ring fenced? So in other words, you should tax where there's a wet dyeing process, so that that money can go into environmental rehabilitation. So the problem is is actually tracking the money, whereas I think you know you should be you should phase out. Um, and, and maybe this is where the carbon credit trading comes in, in other words, it's an incentive to use waterless dyeing and you know, the, the biggest culprits of, of, of effluence are in actual fact on the Asian continent, so from India right through to the Pacific Rim to China, where we have you know, a lot of um, textile manufacturing. And you know the world is, is really guilty of sending it there because there was water and it's cheap labor, and I think it's starting to bite us now, and we need to re relook at that. And I think COVID is helping us to re-pivot or onboard local manufacturers. So we're seeing in the Western world a lot more clothing manufacture being and and dye stuff, so textiles uh, restarting, and also mining, for for example, um, so that to reduce the reliance on international supply chains. How that's going to affect the developing world is we have to see but i think in africa it's quite disastrous it's affecting the Af- sub-saharan african continent quite badly but it's also a wake-up call for us and that we need to start you know industrializing ourselves on a decentralized basis as opposed to putting all of the industrial activity into one region in the world um so i think COVID, one of the unintended consequences is that it's going to, I believe, improve environmental um, uh, issues uh, quite markedly.
0: Mm. Wow, that yeah, that's uh, definitely perspective which I didn't didn't think of earlier. Yeah, because um, I feel like that's a lot of what you know the world today has done is shift their problems off to offshore countries, right? And and definitely uh, we need to sort of remember that ultimately it's the same planet, right? And uh, you know, you cause pollution somewhere else; it's gonna come back to bite you. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, that's uh, really, really good insight there, Bindu. Um, It's 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 actually unbelievable how serious the water scarcity problem uh, has gotten today. And uh, you know, small steps like just changing, let's say, the textile uh, dyeing process, um, or or even just awareness initiatives taken, right? by people like you or by me right they can really help us in tackling this crisis um, so, and and while you know I, i'd love to discuss this further um i see we've almost run out of time um and we're really glad you could join us today benoit um, and we look forward to having you back on the show uh sometime in the future thank you so much for your insights thank you very much and i appreciate being able to support
1: um our water security um, um, mission that we have. Nice speaking to you and and to your listeners. Thank you both.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you listeners. Uh, We'll be back with you very soon.